Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm so happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project today Faye Darmawi. Faye is a film festival producer, community development banker, and urban planner using all forms of storytelling and media to achieve social justice. She is the founder and executive director of the SF Urban Film Fest, a film festival focused on civic engagement inspired by great storytelling. The fest just completed its seventh season in February of 2021, and this time it was a virtual film festival, as so many are this year. Faye wants everyone to understand how urban planning touches our everyday lives in ways large and small, causing changes in the quality as well as the duration of our lives. Everything we see all around us from the practicalities of how we live, work, and commute to issues of social justice are all, what she says, by design. If we want to see a better world, Faye believes it's up to us to work together in our communities as well as outside of our communities. Faye Darmawi, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you so much for that really nice introduction. Well, you bring to this film fest, it's the San Francisco or SF Urban Film Fest, not to be confused with another kind of festival that goes on, Um, but this is specific, but you bring 25 years as a leader in affordable housing finance and years of experience as a screenwriter training and your community storytelling work. Tell me what it is that prompted you to start the SF Urban Film Fest. Well, it was actually frustration working in affordable housing for 25 years. And my assumption was that if we built it, everybody would understand and get involved in the affordable housing movement. So it was like a bricks and mortar approach. We were trying to build as much affordable housing as fast as possible. But we were doing that. And at the same time, the problem got bigger and bigger. So I define the problem as a conceptual or story, the way we conceptualize our society in that we didn't understand how affordable housing is built and that it takes a lot of public sector money and that the public sector money comes from our taxes and that we don't actually support paying into taxes to build affordable housing because we'd actually don't believe that poor people deserve communal solidarity. 
No, wait. So let me unravel this a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be patient with me. You know, my urban planning is just if I get my kitchen counter cleared off, right? (laughs) So uh, you're thinking bigger than I am. So what you're saying is you, you sort of, it sounds as though you started off kind of idealistic, like, oh gosh, if we build it, they'll come. It's a good thing to do. People need housing. Ta-da. San Francisco, for those who live outside of here, is one of the most unaffordable housing markets on the planet. So it sounds like you started off with kind of an idealistic notion, and then you discovered the obstacles along the way. Yes, yes. I thought the obstacles was accessing land and money, but in fact, the obstacle is really the way we think about each other, the way we tell stories about who is deserving and who is not deserving. Oh, can you give me an example of that and tell me what you mean? Yeah, so the example that I usually use is the welfare queen storyline that Ronald Reagan used to demonize black single mothers. Uh, During his reign, he basically said, we can't have any more welfare programs because black single moms are just exploiting the system and we need to dismantle this social safety net uh, and do away with it and... Uh, in, in its stead, we will require all these onerous requirements for anyone to tap into social assistance. Well, you, know, you know, as you're telling me that particular story, something's really coming to mind, and that is, I, I believe in the power of words. And politicians and advertising executives know that more than anything. And it just seems like even the choice of the words, welfare queen, like that's genius in its evil, right? Yeah. Because it it conjures up an image of somebody living fat yes. off of welfare when that is so seldom the case. I mean, so extraordinarily rarely the case. Yes. But it was like a it was like the truth got repackaged. Yes. Exactly. I mean I mean we see that now, right? The truth is repackaged in so many ways that uh we can't even figure out what the truth is anymore uh, in terms of if you look at the media, who's deserving and who's not deserving right now. Mm. Um, so that storyline of the welfare queen uh, became the visuals that was the rationale to dismantle a lot of social programs that we have uh, and was the beginning of the explosion of homelessness. So that explosion of homelessness. Homelessness has always been a problem in San Francisco, but no, that's not true. Oh, really? So even that myth is, is we wrong. didn't, we didn't have, we didn't have homelessness until the early eighties, really until Reagan. Uh-huh. Yeah. We had lots and lots of programs to help folks who were suffering from mental health and drug uh, needs drug rehab needs. We had all kinds of those programs and we had rent control uh, come in so that we had um, people could stabilize in their housing. We had SROs. We had this amazing system for for homeless um, housing uh, come in right after Reagan. The folks from the 60s were trying to create these homeless systems uh, which where, where you have emergency, transitional, and permanent housing. So look, look how easy it was. See, I moved to San Francisco in 1983. And so therefore, my view was my own, right? How, look how easily I swallowed the myth hole. Yes. That it had always been a problem. 
It was in the early 80s, and it was a it was a battle between people who wanted to create um, wanted to maintain the social services that we had and also create new programs. And Reagan was like, "No, this welfare queen is actually what really is happening. These people are not deserving." So yeah, so the SF Urban Film Fest was really born out of trying to uplift and amplify and create narratives from the bottom up. Like what is actually happening in communities these days? So it was about busting through that false narrative? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tell me about what the Film Fest is, because it's it's more than just movies. It, it is movies, yes, but it's more, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, movies is only just one component of it. Um, we literally just use the film festival as an excuse to talk about communities, stories, and social change. Um, and film is a very efficient, uh, emotionally resonant, a unifying experience where you can sort of cut through the chase in about an hour and a half and get to a place where people are on the same page and then you start talking. Mm -hmm. The problem with a lot of conversations happening in the public sector or in the public around social issues is that it takes like many days, weeks, years to get people on the same page and then to start talking. So our thought is that let's use film to get people on the same page in an hour and a half, then start the panel discussions, then start the storytelling workshops, then start you know, talking to experts. So at the very core of your effort, rather than starting with available land and collecting money, you're, the very core of what you're doing starts with the story. Yes, the stories that we tell about ourselves and each other determine the policies and programs that we create for each other. Well, so that determines what I vote on and what I vote for and against and all of that. Yeah, I had it the opposite. <laughs> I I think I did. I mean, I don't even know if this is the right way, but for real, I was getting just burnt out and frustrated on a bricks and mortar only strategy. And I had to do something different. Hmm. And so the Film Fest now has been going on seven years and you just did the, the virtual Film Fest. I know that I'm a, I'm a big film festival fan, and I, I went to the Mill Valley Film Festival this year virtually. Went to drive-ins and had streaming at home and all of that. It wasn't quite the same, but it was still pretty special. I bet you're looking forward to a post-COVID world when you can have the Film Fest live again. Uh, well, actually, we ramped up our technology and our ability to offer virtual programming and, and really saw the benefits of being virtual, that we had a global audience and we could actually have cross-national problem-solving sessions. Oh, oh, many, nice. Yeah, many cities are are way ahead of us in terms of like figuring out solutions. So that doesn't seem surprising to me. Um, no. <laughs> well, so the lemonade that got made because of the pandemic now is going to service and, and help you to reach a larger larger audience and include voices other than just local. Absolutely. I mean, we were always talking about it, but the pandemic literally forced us to ramp up in about four or five months, six different technology platforms that we didn't use before, but that also evolved during those six months. Uh, so from now on, we'll be doing hybrid 
festivals. Well, so tell me what you, how, I understand, of course, that when you're talking about affordable housing, that it's a social justice issue because it's, it's again, the view of not only Black Americans, but, but others, other people of color and just poor people in general being viewed a certain way and judged a certain way as what you're saying, unworthy. So I'm wondering, beyond that, how are you connecting social justice to what you're talking about? You're, you're not talking just about housing with the Film Fest. You're talking about other issues as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole gamut of urban planning issues um, where we're talking about transportation and transit and like why are certain transportation options provided um, for certain neighborhoods and not others? Why are certain neighborhoods impacted by environmental degradation and, and others aren't? And then the funding going to, uh, let's say, like the need right now is like really to clean up the soil in the Bayview, but it's, it's still not happening. Mm. Why is that? You know, and why are we not dealing with that since we are, we actually created it? So for, for those outside of the Bay Area, let me say the Bayview is a neighborhood in San Francisco that is, how do you, how would you describe it? It's a, it's a less posh area, <laughs> yeah. certainly less posh than North Beach or, uh, or other areas that you might think of as swankier in San Francisco. So it's, it doesn't seem like an accident. I mean, it, it's not an accident at all, of course, that, the water in Flint, Michigan, that was affected was in the poorest and blackest of neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Had that been to the more well-heeled <laughs> neighborhood, I bet it would have gotten fixed. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the, we can also um, talk about how COVID has really revealed how structural the inequality is and how endemic it is in every single way and aspect of our life in this country and globally, and that the virus doesn't care. So because we don't think about what's happening in the global South and India, for example, well, that virus is just going to come over here. Right? The fact that we're not providing for vaccines over there it's, it's just going to be to our detriment. So it's the same in the U.S. And if you want to think about urban planning issues, the fact that it was kind of like uh, very, very revolutionary for San Francisco to think about uh, the, the mission and the Bayview and Chinatown first before any other neighborhood to invest in, in those neighborhoods in terms of the vaccine. Because you know, London Breed knew, like, if we didn't help those who really need the help the most, then we're not helping ourselves as an entire city. Well, so let's unpack that just a little bit, because I, th I think it's kind of an interesting blueprint for what you're talking about, that Mayor London Breed chose to focus on Bayview, Mission, those districts in San Francisco that are less privileged than other districts. In Chinatown. In Chinatown, excuse me. And partly because there was the biggest need there, but also given that those people that live in those neighborhoods are typically frontline workers and essential workers working in kitchens and daycares and elder care and all those kinds of things, that would have just spread it worse and worse. And in fact, San Francisco, I believe, has one of the lowest infection rates now in the country. 
as a result of taking care of the neediest first and not waiting, having them be last in line. Yes, exactly. So do you see that then as a blueprint for other big matters, not only just in San Francisco, but in general? Absolutely. I mean, the, like people use the word, the fancy word equity, but, but that's what it means. It means really thinking about people who have the, the least access to resources being prioritized, mm. not only for them, but all just for the greater good. Well, yeah, they don't get preferential treatment because they're more important, but because they have less access and then ultimately that serves everybody better. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is like a very narrow way of thinking about it, but we want to take a bigger sort of like spiritual approach. We're missing out on the, the full blooming of people who do not have access to basic needs. Hmm. Can you imagine the full blooming of everyone, how that would help all of us? I often wonder how, how much art and music and engineering and all every form of productivity, how much, how many small businesses don't, don't develop because those populations are, are deprived of oxygen for, for, right, for right. their creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can add some, a little bit of background sure. on my life to like, that's where this, I was just going to go. To make it ground, a little bit grounded, what I'm talking about, which is that I'm an immigrant from Jakarta, Indonesia. And we were like, we were, we're Chinese. So I, there's probably not a lot of folks who are listening to your podcast who actually understand what that means, which is that we were, we're highly a persecuted minority in Indonesia, the Chinese are. So we had to basically like run away to the US. And luckily we had safe passage and we were able to figure out how to get here. But imagine my alternative life, which would have been being stuck in Jakarta, Indonesia, uh, as a Chinese woman. I doubt that I would have been able to flourish as a human being there. Mm -hmm. The fact that we were given the opportunity to come to the U.S., and access to the resources here and the freedoms. I do not take that for granted ever. Hmm. Yeah. And I just appreciate everything that's been available to me here. You know, what? what's really interesting is that story is so much the story of so many immigrants who come here and are so grateful. It just seems it must make you a certain kind of special patriot in a way, you know, a, a, an appreciative, appreciative devotee of America. And at the same time, you, you are equally aware that it can be better, that it can continue to grow. Yeah. I mean, we're even more acutely aware that we came here for the American dream. So we're going to damn realize it. <laughs> and how old were you when you immigrated? I was eight years old. Okay. What must that have been like? Tell me your immigration story. Um, well, so I grew up in Jakarta in a public military public housing. And Jakarta is like this really polluted, crowded, noisy, chaotic. But at the same time, like my family was there and all, you know, it had in my history, it had my culture, it had different cultures. It was life. And then we moved to 
the suburbs of Washington, D.C. called Bethesda, Maryland. And I didn't know what the suburbs, what, what that was until I got here. And it was the opposite of life. Everything is super controlled and super quiet and super safe. And there's no chaos. And that was by design. And I was, and everybody's sort of like atomized and individualized and everyone has like, you know, half an acre, a quarter of an acre around them. And there's hardly any commons. There's no public space. Everybody's in their cars. I hated it. (laughs) I was, I felt like a fish out of water and I would take the Metro to DC every chance I could. Because that felt more familiar, that kind of urban congestion felt more familiar to you. Yes. Isn't it interesting though, that it seems that you may have been a fish out of water, but now you can swim in both kinds of ponds. It, it seems that you're bringing both of those desires, wanting there to be green space, wanting them there to be autonomy, but not wanting there to be such distance and isolation between people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm always trying to build community no matter, I mean, like, it's kind of like second nature to me that I'm always rousing people together and like connecting people and like looking at connections and unifying instead of looking at differences. I, I see people's obviously individual geniuses, but I'm all, I'm, my tendency is to create networks. Hmm. Well, and, and of course, for those who live happily in suburbs or in rural communities, they too can find their way of building their own sense of community. For you, that's in a very urban center like San Francisco or, or DC. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I asked a little bit earlier and we didn't, I, then I scooted you off the topic. Other than film, what else takes place at the Urban Film Fest? Oh, right. So we have film screenings and panel discussions. We also have storytelling workshops and we pioneered the storytelling workshop format to help nonprofits, community groups, public agencies, and even private corporations to amplify uh, certain policies or programs or projects that they want to get off the ground. And we do this in a very democratic way. We try to get as 20 to 30 people who are part of their team and then break them up into small groups and generate narratives so that's really fun. Well, that, that's the workshop part. It, it sounds like yes. it was sort of a, a precursor to say the moth and those kinds of, or I don't know if it's, I don't know if they happen side by side or one before the other, but it's what you might think of as the moth where there's, there's live storytelling. Oh, um, actually that's like individual live storytelling. This is oh. more like for, for agencies, for nonprofits. For, oh, for, okay. Yeah. For like on a, on a, like a organizational level. Okay. So you're, you're helping, I'm just fantasizing here, but let's just say there's a group that is figuring out how to conserve water or how to desalinize ocean water, something like that, how they could tell the story of that. Exactly. Exactly. Why it's important. And then we would like to define different audiences and different narratives would resonate with different audiences. So we are like helping, for instance, uh, Soma Filipinas, which is uh, the Filipino American community in Soma, and they're they're developing an anti-displacement strategy. And so we were, we're helping them generate sort of narratives and storylines and storyboards for potential videos that they 
they could uh, produce uh, to galvanize other community members and the, the city as a whole to, to get behind them. So let me ask you this last question or last series of questions here. How do you keep your, I know the fight for money, the fight for voice, the fight against opposition must be really hard. Who Who are your opponents when you're trying to build affordable housing, when you're trying to uh, enact more equitable re- access to resources. Who are your opponents and what's the hard part? <laughs> um, I think the, the, the opponents, so to speak, are people who, who can't imagine a different world. Mm. That they are really stuck in their ways and that their way is the only way. And Really, storytelling in film is a way to help people break through that because you can imagine many thousands of different worlds and you can just use film and story and just paint different pictures of different ways that we could live together. So your enemy is a lack of imagination? Yes. <laughs> and when you get discouraged, when this when the job seems too big or so, too impossible, how do you keep going? Um, (laughs) I think about my relatives, um, my immediate relatives, my mom's generation, my grandmother's generation and what they had to go through in Indonesia. Um, you know, my mom, my mom and my dad lived through Dutch colonialism, World War II, civil war, almost genocide, moving to the U.S. So, like, writing a grant doesn't seem that hard relative to that. Mm-hmm. Well, so it sounds like you you look at it on scale. The difficulties are difficult, but when you back up and look at it compared to the difficulties in other environments and other generations. I have it easy, man. Huh. You know, sometimes I wonder if we all can step back and look at things on scale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially Americans Mm -hmm. who have been sort of pampered all their life, right? It's very hard. Yeah. If your biggest problem is wilted arugula, you've got no problems, right? (laughs) It's, you know, the, the things that we get demanding about, I I don't, I don't mean to trivialize it. That was sort of a silly example, but I guess I, I was picking the most ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, really like, Take a step back. Yeah. Take stock of what you have. Take stock of what other people don't have. You know, can you help? COVID sort of did this, that for us a lot, didn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully. I want to take the lessons that we learned forward. I know that for me, throughout this whole pandemic, I kept asking myself, what are what are the lessons I'm supposed to be learning? And Faye, so much of what you talk about is part of that, being aware of others who have less and being aware of the myths that we might have swallowed, like the one you educated me about that I was even holding on to, but even the language that somebody might use to describe something. If we bust through that language, which can be such a myth builder, it can help us look at people differently. There's just no such thing as a welfare queen. (laughs) It's an oxymoron, even in and of itself, right? 
Right, right, right. And we, one thing that people can do is really like work on their imagination. How would you say to go about that? Well, I would take a, I would take a improv class or a drawing class or music writing class or, or mute or like a musical instrument poetry. I mean, you name it, go down to city college and go to the art department. Just like pick anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just bust out your mind, make it, make it broader and put new kinks in your brain. Right. (laughs) So if folks want to find out about the SF urban film fest, how can they do that? Oh, really easy. We're on all social media platforms at SF urban film fest. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, our Instagram is really um, popping right now because we have a bunch of Instagram live interviews of the artists that we featured at our YBCA installation. Oh, I forgot to tell everybody that uh, we are artists in residence at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, so we're all over the YBCA website as well. We also have our own website, sfurbanfilmfest.com, and the... Uh, Next program that we have is at YBCA with YBCA. It'll be the summer program where we're going to be helping tell the story of how YBCA is transforming as well as the, as well as SOMA and the Filipino and LGBTQ community uh, of SOMA. Wonderful. Well, I'm certainly going to tune in because I was, I've lived here for many, many, many years and I was unaware of the beautiful work you're doing. Thank you for bringing your insight and your heart and your family experience and your culture to help us learn and to help us broaden what we do. Thank you. And thanks for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you, Bessie. My conversation with Faye Darmawi today really got me thinking about my thinking. (laughs) I guess what I mean is how easily myths are built up and assumptions based on what we're told or on the limits of our own experience. I moved to San Francisco in the early 80s. And so my total experience has been one where there's been homelessness. So what did I think, of course, that it's always been there and it's not the case. See how easy it is and, and how also how language chosen by folks who want to package up information a certain way and tilt it and slant it can be used. You know, as a writer, I use language as a tool all the time, as a speaker, as a trainer, and as a coach, but it can be used as a weapon too. And like Faye suggested, to broaden our imaginations, to listen to the language that people use when they're describing certain circumstances and maybe imagine how else that might be described? What other words could describe somebody who's troubled and needs help rather than calling them a welfare queen? Hmm. I'm going to be listening to the language that our politicians and advertisers use to describe things. And see if I can't turn a few of those upside down and inside out and sideways and challenge the image that they're projecting. I think it's worthwhile. I'm so grateful to people like Faye who are looking at the bigger picture of community 
and looking past the obstacles, bringing their passion to bear for the benefit of us all. And the big old extra bloom is that when we help those who are the most disadvantaged, that it doesn't just help them, it helps us all. We can help others for both generous and self-serving reasons. That's some big fat extra blooms for today, and I'm going to take them. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. It's always my joy to have your time. And I hope that wherever you are, whether you are in an urban, a rural, or a suburban environment, that you're finding your own way to bloom. Mm -hmm.